You're listening to the Word of Hope, sermons preached at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Today's sermon is preached by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints of God, Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. It's called that because Matthew tells us that Jesus, who saw the great multitude following after him to hear him, went up to the side of the mountain by the Sea of Galilee. And so you can imagine that these long, sloping hills leading down to the sea, covered with grass and lilies, a tree here and there. And Jesus is standing there with thousands of people spread out below him to hear him preaching, some sitting, some standing, some chewing on a blade of grass, listening to the sermon. Now, some, some, no doubt, are listening with the earnestness of faith. They've been waiting for the coming of the kingdom of God, and, and, and now they hear it in the voice of Jesus. Others, no doubt, are simply listening with a curiosity. They wonder what this new teacher is all about. Some, I'm, I'm sure, are, are listening with a desperate kind of intensity. These are the sinners that are there listening who know that they're sinners. Those who, who feel the wrath of God breathing down the back of their neck, like, like the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners who, whose ears always seem the most open to hear the gospel. They've, they've already given up hope and earning their own salvation. They're, they're on the lookout for the Savior of sinners, and they think that this man might be the one. And then in and among all of the other people are the scribes, and the Pharisees, it seems like they're always in the crowd. And they're listening, but they're listening crit- critically. They, they are mostly listening because they want to trap Jesus. They're listening not to learn or to be encouraged, but they want to use the words of Jesus against him. Now, we normally think of these guys, the scribes and the Pharisees, as unbelievers, the part of the crowd that didn't believe in Jesus. But that might not be entirely true. At least it doesn't get the whole picture of who these guys were. Remember, many of them saw the miracles of Jesus, all the things that he did, and and they were able to recognize that these were the acts of the Messiah, God in the flesh. But still they didn't trust in him. Still they didn't have faith. This is interesting to me, and so if you'll indulge me for a little bit while we develop this idea. I tried, by the way, to write a short sermon knowing how hot it was going to be. I tried, but I failed. (laughs) So the fans are there for you, your bulletins, etc. We normally think that the... But I'll get on with it. We normally think that the reason that the scribes and the Pharisees persecuted Jesus and thought to kill him was that that simply they were unbelievers or that they thought that Jesus was lying about who he was. But, but Jesus will indicate time and time again that they, in fact, knew that he was the Messiah and, and still wanted to kill him, that they saw the miracles. And, in fact, the more miracles that they saw from Jesus, the more they, they sought to destroy him. I mean, consider this from John 11, which is where John tells us after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead and all the people saw it, including the Pharisees, they saw the resurrection of Lazarus and it says that they gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees together as a council and said, what do we do now? For this man does many miracles. And if we leave him alone, all the people will believe on him and the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. This is especially when we read the Gospel of John. We see that the Pharisees and the scribes are having this difficult time sorting out what's going on with Jesus. Some see the miracles and believe in Jesus, like Joseph of Arimathea, or later Nicodemus, or much later, Paul. 
they become his disciples and his followers. But others, no doubt, see the miracles and they think that they must be acts of deception. But many of these disciples, these Pharisees, see the miracles. They see that Jesus is at least a prophet blessed by God and still they refuse to believe in him or to follow him. They refuse to trust in him. Why? Why? See, why seeing the miracles didn't they believe? The first thing for us to remember is that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We always, you know, we always think that seeing is believing and we think, at least I think, if I saw a miracle, it'd be easy for me to believe. If I, if I saw Jesus coming out of the grave, for example, it'd be easy to be a believer in Jesus. But that is simply not true. Remember the conversation between Lazarus and the, or between the rich man and Abraham. The rich man had died. He was in torment. He calls out over the gulf to Father Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead so that his brothers wouldn't come to the place of torment. Abraham answers and says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The rich man says, nay, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, then they would repent. And Abraham says, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, even though they saw someone rise from the dead. So just, just because the Pharisees saw the miracles and knew that they were miracles does not mean that they would be, believe in Jesus. But still, even still, many of them did recognize the miracles and did recognize that Jesus was a prophet, and still they wanted to kill him. Why was this? Again, the reasons could be various and complicated. We know, for example, that the Pharisees were lovers of money. Luke tells us that. And so the popularity of Jesus as a preacher and teacher was threatening their livelihood. We know that the Pharisees also like to be adored by the people. Jesus makes fun of them for this, about how they like to stand on the corner and pray so that all the people can see how holy and pious they are. They would fast, but they would make sure that when they fast, that they looked miserable so the people would know that they're fasting. Jesus says that they make their tassels long and their phylacteries broad so they would have these these boxes that they would tie on their head with the Scripture or tie on their arm, and the Pharisees would make them bigger and bigger so that you would see how much holier they are than everyone else. They would make a show of it, see, of their religious activity, of the clothes they wore, of the way they cut their hair, of the way they talked. All of these things from the Pharisees were there to indicate that they were pursuing the holiness and righteousness of God on their own and to indicate to anyone who was watching and listening that they had achieved that righteousness. And this is the real and essential problem the Pharisees had. They had established a righteousness of their own. They thought that they were holy and good by their own efforts. Now, we hear all the time how the Pharisees had added to God's law, right? God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, and the Pharisees were adding more and more laws to the laws that Moses had given. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, God says, and the Pharisees busied themselves figuring out how to keep that law. For example, how many steps could you take on the Sabbath day? What did it truly mean to rest? How much weight could you carry? Could you change clothes on the Sabbath day? Could you snuff out a candle? Could you spit on the Sabbath? That was a big debate that they had, and they, by the way, determined that you could spit if your spit landed on a rock, but not if it landed on the dirt, because to land on the dirt could be watering a plant. That's the Pharisees, see? And that's their righteousness. Now, we look at this, 
at all of their laws and rules and ordinances, how high they set the bar. And we think, looking at the Pharisees, who could do that? Who could be that holy? Who could keep all of those laws? And we are tempted to think that the Pharisees, in fact, have a higher standard than God does. Now, we're getting to the point, so stay with me here. We're tempted to think that the that the Ten Commandments have this standard of righteousness, but that the Pharisees required so much more. And that, dear friends, is exactly what the Pharisees want you to think. The Pharisees want you to think that they have, reach, that they have achieved the surpassing, exceeding righteousness of God and that you have not. Here's an example. We had a basketball hoop when I was growing up. And I remember one time that I lowered the hoop just low enough so that I could dunk the basketball. It was probably five feet in the air, you know. I lowered it just low enough so that I could dunk the ball, but my two little brothers couldn't. And I went in and I said to them, I lowered the hoop, let's go have a slam dunk contest. (laughs) And I won. You see, that's the Pharisee game. There's no way that I could dunk a basketball on a 10-foot hoop. I mean, even in high school, I could barely jump high enough to touch the net. But I could lower the hoop so that I could do it. I made sure that I lowered it just to the right point, that I could do it and my brothers could not. And this is what the Pharisees had done. They had not raised the bar. They had lowered it. They had not heightened God's Ten Commandments. They had diminished them. They had made them easier, keepable, doable, difficult, but manageable, especially if you were a Pharisee living the Pharisee lifestyle. Now, the Pharisees had been playing this game for so long, I think, that many of them had forgotten that it was a game. Imagine that I would dunk enough basketballs on my five-foot hoop that I start to think that I could play in the NBA. The Pharisees, likewise, were convinced of their own righteousness, their exceeding righteousness, this this earning them of God's favor, that they would be saved by their works. And the people there had been caught up in the same delusion. They were looking to the scribes and the Pharisees as paragons of virtue, as examples of righteousness. And there they were all together on that day. Pharisees, scribes, people sitting on the grass by the hill, uh, uh, by this, on the hill by the Sea of Galilee, listening to Jesus preach the sermon. Now, it's with this in mind, with this Pharisee game in mind, that I want you to hear the first verse from the Gospel lesson. So you can imagine being a Pharisee. Come, for, come up from Jerusalem to Galilee to hear the new teacher, what he's saying, and this is what he preaches. Listen to this. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness shall exceed and surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. With a sentence, Jesus blows up their entire game. Now, I think if you're a scribe or a Pharisee and you're listening to that, at first you think, that's right, we're the ones that are righteous. And then you listen and say, wait a minute, he's insulting me. And he is insulting you. 
or the normal people who, who are listening and realize that he's insulting the, the Pharisees, they might chuckle as they see Jesus getting after him, but then they think, hold on, hold on. If you have to have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, how can I possibly get there? I mean, I can't even get to the point of being a scribe or a Pharisee. How can I surpass them? And that, dear saints, is the right question. Jesus goes on in his preaching to expose the game. You've heard it said that you shall not murder, but I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, if you call him a fool or a moron, you're guilty and deserving of condemnation. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. There is more to the law, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and to the people and to us. There is more to the law than the outward keeping of the work. The law is about what we say and about what we think and about what we want. The law is a matter of the heart. And the law demands so much of us, of you and of me, that we dare not think that we have kept it. That we dare not think that we are righteous if we'd lived a certain way. The law demands much more than that. The righteousness of the law is much more than that. For the Pharisees, it's more. For the normal people, for, it's more. It's for you and for me, it's more. You see that Jesus, he finds me having the slam dunk contest with my brothers, and he raises the hoop back up to 10 feet. And he, or maybe let's say, he raises the hoop up to 30 feet, and he says, dunk it now. Brian, Pharisee, sinner. Ah. In, in fact, in fact, Jesus says, dunk it now or you die. <laughs> Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That's how high the bar is. Now, that command sounds incredibly harsh unless you had seen how much I was rubbing it in my brother's faces every time I made the basket. It seems harsh unless you had seen the Pharisees and how the law is exalting itself, exalting our pride, saying that we are our own God and our own Savior, so that the demands of the law come to humble us, to demonstrate our weakness, to show us our sins, to stop every mouth, to crush in every way, to crush our pride. So we look at the law like the 30-foot hoop and we say simply, at last, I can't do it. This is why Jesus preaches the way he does to the people and the Pharisees and to you and to me. So that we would look at the law and we would look at Jesus and we would say, I can't do it. I have not kept the law. I've sinned. I've fallen short of your glory. I have failed. I'm not righteous. I'm a sinner. I can't do it. And then, there, in your weakness and your sin and your failure and your deserving of his wrath, there, in your humility, in your contrition, Jesus looks at you and he says, I've got you covered. He keeps the law for you. He lives a sinless life for you. He dies for you. He bears your sins in order to give to you, listen, to give to you His righteousness. His perfect keeping of the law. 
His perfect obedience to God the Father. This, dear friends, is the only righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It is the righteousness of Christ. And this is the righteousness that you have. Your sins are forgiven. You have the righteousness of Christ. Your uncleanness is washed away. You have the righteousness of Christ. You are declared holy and innocent. The righteousness and perfection of Jesus are imputed to you. And this is the gift of of the Gospel. It's what it means to be a Christian. For I say to you, says Jesus, that unless your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven, but we pair that verse with what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God made Him who knew no sin, that is Christ, to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. Dear forgiven sinners, dear saints, you have this righteousness, this exceeding righteousness of Christ. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. God has made it so. Amen. Now may this peace, which is the peace of God, that passes our understanding, guard your heart and your mind through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope. We hope your time with us was one of joy and peace in hearing the Lord's Word and kindness. If you have questions about anything you heard on today's broadcast, please don't hesitate to contact us at office at hope-aurora.org or call the office at 303-364-7416. For more information about our congregation, for locations, service time, and schedule, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope.